This is On and Off Your Mind Podcast, episode 209. How to keep up with yoga in moments of chaos. If you tend to practice yoga as another thing on your to-do list, and when your life gets a little or a lot out of hand, yoga just falls off your to-do list, or if you blindly follow your teacher's recommendations without really knowing how to meet your own needs in real time and by yourself, today's episode is for you. For today's episode, I sat down with Brett Larkin. Brett is the founder of Uplifted Yoga and the author of Yoga Life, Habits, Poses, and Breathwork to Channel Joy Amidst the Chaos. Her online yoga teacher trainings have set the standards for quality online certification since 2015 and matriculated thousands of yoga teachers. Brett's award-winning YouTube channel with over half a million subscribers An Uplifted Yoga Podcast empowers you to actively design your life using yoga's ancient wisdom. Yoga enthusiasts love her course on Kundalini Yoga, Prenatal Yoga, and the Uplifted Yoga Academy. We are looking in this episode at yoga and self-care as a science of energy management. So you can replace the habits that you have that actually waste your energy and your life force. We are talking about yoga habits that can help you feel better and be happier, even in moments of chaos, and how to use your dosha and Ayurveda to create the best practices for you, for what you need, according to where you are in that moment. We're also talking about how to adapt and deconstruct the practice or create one in a full toolkit of micro practices that you can do throughout the day that become a bit like your own apothecary that you can use as needed for your well-being. If this episode inspires you in any way, I mean, you'll see that Brett and I really think alike. So share it and help someone else on their journey to live their practice as a way that serves themselves. I really love to read your takeaways on the episode. So if you take a screenshot of the episode and share something you've learned on IG, make sure to tag at on and off your mind podcast or erica.belanger. And I'll be happy to see them and reshare them for you. Before we get to today's episode, I have one more reminder regarding Recharge, Reconnect and Reset the Retreat coming up this April. It's really, really soon. So if you've been thinking about going on this retreat, you've got to make your move before it's too late. This retreat is like getting three months of coaching with me packed in seven days. You'll learn all my favorite mind, body, spirit, nervous system, and self-care practices so you can drop your hustle lifestyle, melt the stress and anxiety away, and transform your life from the inside out. If you're a sensitive soul or you're a yogi and you're ready to put yourself first and cater to your needs, maybe for the first time without guilt, and you want to learn how you can return to your life feeling rejuvenated and equipped to make it last, this is going to be life-changing for you. So go to ericabelanger.com slash retreat for all the juicy details you need. We can also get on a call to talk about all those details, or you can send me a DM on Instagram with the word retreat, and we'll talk about it. You'll have all the links you need in the show notes, including even my email if you want to reach out. All right, if you're ready to jump into today's episode with Brett, let's go. It's going to be a good one. Hi, Brett. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited. Me too. For listeners that don't know you very well yet, I'm sure most of them know of you at least. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey and what brought you here today? 
Well, where to begin? I am someone who never thought I could make a full-time living teaching yoga. I always like to touch on and say that early on. I thought if I taught yoga, I'd forever be poor, that it would mean, you know, begging in the streets or just like never meeting my financial goals. So it's been really an incredible ride to have built this, not just yoga career, but yoga company at this point. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of anxiety as a child and as a teen and in college. I'm sure a lot of listeners can relate to that. And when someone first told me to try yoga, I just rolled my eyes. I thought yoga was for wimps. I think I said that to them. I was like, well, why would I do that? I had a dance background. So I literally saw yoga as like what losers who couldn't be cool enough to do dance would do. But of course, I tried it and fell in love. And then even after doing my first yoga teacher training, I didn't have enough confidence to teach or share my voice. It took years to gather up the courage. And I started slowly putting YouTube videos online in 2012, not really thinking anyone would watch them. There's a lot of stories we can dive into. But to flash forward to today, I have a YouTube channel that's large. I have half a million subscribers. I run online yoga teacher trainings. I was the first person to put yoga teacher training online back in 2015 when we had two whole weeks in our curriculum about how to use Zoom and what it was because no one knew what it was back then. And I have just written a book, which I'm so honored that you read. So I'm trying to think what else, but those are the big nuggets of what is now not just me, Brett Larkin, but the Uplifted Yoga brand and company because I have so many amazing women and two men who also work with me. Amazing. In the book, you tell the story about how life can get out of control sometimes and become chaotic. And I think it's super common for most of us that when life gets chaotic and shit hits the fan, the first thing that we lose track of is our practice, right? It just falls off to the side. And even if in that moment, it's like probably one of the things we need the most. So what can we do? What can we do to help ourselves stay on the mat, stay with our practice when it feels like it's the last thing we have energy for? Yes. Well, I was so excited to come on your show because just the title of it, you know, the on and off the map, we were talking before we hit record about how we just share a lot of common values. And the book is called, for anyone who doesn't know, it's called Yoga Life, Habits, Poses, and Breathwork to Channel Joy Amidst the Chaos. So in my case, necessity really was the mother of invention. And to explain a little bit more what that means is that even before what I'm about to describe happened, I was having some sense within myself that yoga was so much more than a physical practice. It always was more than a physical practice for me. I was seeing the benefits in my relationships with my parents, with my partner. I was always trying to hack yoga into my day-to-day -day life because I just like to micro-optimize everything. That's just my personality. So I was, you know, doing all these things like using my furniture to stretch and doing breathing techniques between writing emails and all those things forever. But I was also getting the sense that a lot of the rigid yoga rules that had been passed down to me needed to evolve and change. But I didn't have the courage to say anything about that or do anything about that. And that's where this crazy year of my life came in. So in a one-year period, I became a new mom. So I gave birth to my first child, which really turns your life upside down if you are not ready for it. And I was not ready for it. I was just in shock about how much time my newborn 
took. And then at the same time, during that same 12-month period, I lost my father to cancer. I was his sole care provider. My parents were divorced. I'm an only child. He never remarried. Like when I say sole care provider, I mean, it was me and him and he was in hospice in my home with me and my newborn dying. My business and the online teacher trainings were scaling that year. And exactly as you said, Erica, it was like, I did not have time. But because I am the way I am, like I did not want to allow my yoga practice to slip But all the yoga that I had been taught or practiced up to that point wasn't supporting me anymore. I was like, I don't need this eight-limbed path to reach samadhi. Like, I need to make it to the end of the day without having a breakdown while I like change diapers and argue with the insurance company over my dad's medication and manage my team. So I started kind of doing a lot of like radical self-experimentation. And that's why I say necessity is the mother of invention, because I started practicing in a way that I think if I hadn't been at such a rock bottom moment, I would have been afraid to practice. Like some days Mm. I'd only have 10 minutes. And so I would just do like a little bit of a Kundalini Kriya, for example, followed by some yin that felt nourishing for me, followed by like a chant. Like I just went totally off script. I started doing poses like really quickly, kind of maybe out of the traditional alignment that I actually teach everyone else in my manuals. But I was like, I just need to do what I know feels good for me right now. And that radical personalization framework or that kind of radical looking within and mixing and matching yoga styles ultimately led to the framework that I present in the book. And I'll pause in just a moment, but just to share an anecdote, because I think this is important, is I would practice during that year of my life by setting a timer. So like if I had five minutes to practice, I'd set an alarm essentially on my phone for five minutes. Mm -hmm. If I had 20, I'd do 20. A lot of times it was 15, three sometimes. And I would never forget there was this one morning that I came to my mat and I really went off script. I was moving. Could we even call it yoga poses? Like I was doing more somatic movement. I was slowing down a lot of Kundalini techniques that are supposed to be done faster. Like I was just doing my own thing to the beat of my own drum. And I remember feeling extremely anchored, extremely calm, like that great high you get after a yoga class. But, you know, that really Mm -hmm. grounded, embodied feeling of just like, oh, yes, I feel so much more authentic and anchored and thank God for yoga. And then I remember opening my eyes and being like, the timer hasn't gone off yet. And then I was like, oh crap, my phone's broken. Like my phone must have died. And when I looked at my phone, I had reached that state in 16 minutes. I had set the timer for 20 that day. And I couldn't believe that in 16 minutes doing a highly personalized routine that I was able to feel as good as if I had done like a 90 minute class or like a 90 minute group class. And I remember like thinking, there's something here. Like, how do I teach other people about this? Like, how did this happen? How is this possible? And of course, it took me years to recover from the death and the birth and all the things. But it was piecing that apart that became the personalization framework that I then ended up offering in Yoga Life, the book. I mean, it's incredible what giving yourself permission to do a small amount of time, right? Putting that 10 minute timer and be like, this is what I'm taking for myself today. And I'm okay when it's done. And I'm okay if I'm finished before as well. But just kind of giving ourselves a container, I think that's always super helpful. And then giving ourselves permission to mix and match of all the things we know that are helpful for us. And then focusing on what we need in that moment, letting go of the rules, letting go of what we think we're supposed to do. And really, I hear practicing listening and showing up for ourselves in that way. So many of my students want consistency. You know, they're asking me, how do I stay consistent with my practice? And the answer to that is to make your practice so nourishing that you'd never want to skip it. 
and you crave it. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to teach you how to do in this book. I talk a little bit about how every day is like an equation, right? It's like, what's your mind-body type? So we start there with Ayurveda, which I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with, because depending your dominant dosha, your dominant element, fire, earth, or air, that's going to radically change the types of yoga styles, the types of breath work, and the poses you'll want to indulge in or avoid. And I find that most people have no concept of this incredible way that you can really steer your practice to balance you. So you have that, meaning like we're each individual and we each need a different type of yoga. And I've seen this right on YouTube. Like I'll post a video and someone will be like, I love this routine. I love this breath work. It lit me up. Thank you, Brett. I feel so, so energized. Same video. Someone else will comment. This gave me a migraine. So it's like, we know we're all different. The medical community understands we're all different. It doesn't treat us as individuals, but you know, we understand that medication affects us each differently. That's why so many of these medications have so many side effects, right? Like drugs interact with us differently. We only share 10% of our gut microbiome. Like we are all very unique. And then you layer onto that. We feel different each day. Every day is like that equation of how much did I sleep? What's my stress levels? Like, what's the state of the world? What's going on in my job? You know, how much do my kids need me? Like all these things. And then if you're female, you're literally changing every day of your cycle. So the fact that we can practice like the same routine or there's this one size fits all class that's going to meet you where you are is insane. You need to be able to adapt your practice. And I didn't see any books being written about that process. Because to me, that is advanced yoga. Advanced yoga isn't the fancy poses. Advanced yoga is like, how good are you at yogic adaptability, which is a term I coined in the book. But like the yogic adaptability is like, okay, Erica, you have four minutes and no yoga mat. And I don't know, maybe you're somewhere weird, like an airport. Do you know how to nourish yourself? Do you know what to practice? Or you woke up late, you only have 20 minutes to practice and you have to give a big speech later in the day. Do you know how to shift and nourish your energy to set you up for success? To me, that skill of yogic adaptability is the advanced practice, but we're not focused on it. We're not teaching it. Yeah. If that skill comes and you mentioned the doshas a little bit, but it comes with the first step, a first habit that you talk about in the book of awareness. Like it has to start with you being able to ask yourself where you are in the moment, what you need in the moment, including, you know, what's going on in that equation. Where are you in your doshas? Because that can also vary. You can have one that's, you know, dominantly out of balance, but you can have more than one. So you might need to take time to really dip in depending on the season, depending on your day, depending on your cycle. Can you tell us a little bit more about where do we go with awareness? What is that and how we can use it to build our practice in the future. Before we get to like, how do we build the practice? I feel like awareness is something we need to talk about first. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the traditional definition of yoga is to yoke. I mean, everyone listening knows this, yoke head and heart, yoke yourself to the divine. But the definition I offer early in the book is that I actually define yoga as awareness. So you stepping into that witness consciousness of observing your thoughts and the way we get there is through observing the breath. So if you just take a moment to pause, you could do this listening to this podcast right now, like just put your hand on your heart and your belly and take a deep breath and just notice, how am I feeling? Like, what do I want? How am I feeling? That inward reflection to me, that is yoga, right? Like you're doing pinchamayarasana, but you have zero awareness of your breath and you're just like in your ego and struggling or trying to make it look good. To me, that's not yoga. Like you happen to be in a shape that's like associated with the yogic tradition, but 
that's not yoga. So the idea is that even one deep breath amidst the chaos is worthwhile. And there's a couple of things I want to stay on your point because I think we need to talk about Svadhyaya, but a real pivot that I'm trying to also bring in here is that I would love for everyone listening to this to really reframe your yoga practice as something that has cumulative results. So I like to use the analogy of a savings account. If I open a savings account at a bank, I know that if I put money in that account, like I think we'd all agree on this, right? That that's a good idea and that that money is going to grow. We have confidence in that. But unfortunately, I think a lot of us in the yoga community, we do not have confidence that just like a little bit of breath work while I'm sitting in my garage or a couple cat cows before I start watching TV, or just like two sun salutes while I wait for the tea kettle to boil. Somehow that feels less than for us. It doesn't feel like it's meeting these rules that have been laid out for us. And it's worth doing. Yeah. It feels like it's not worth doing. But if you're able to really shift your mindset and say, no, the results of my practice are cumulative, like each little breath, each little essential spinal movement, each neck roll is like money in that savings account bank, except that bank is your nervous system. It makes you much more excited to do these little things throughout the day. And the little things really do add up. And we've proven this. So a huge part of that too means you need to let go of your practice being perfect. (laughs) You need to relinquish control of perfectionism. I've been saying over and over again, as I talk about this concept is like, it doesn't have to be pretty to be potent. Often we think it has to look like a scene from Eat, Pray, Love for it to have value or for our nervous system to be able to benefit. That's just not true. So First, we need to look inward. I love how you're you know, drawing us to that beginning stage. So that could be exactly like what we just said, hand on heart and belly, or I sometimes like to take a palm face up to the sky and just like tune in and ask, you know, like, what do I need right now? What's happening? And I redefine Svadhyaya in the book, which we all translate as self-study to the self-awareness that gives you the power to nourish yourself in the present moment. Because when I really started reflecting on this. It's like, what's the point of self-awareness if I don't use the information to then find a way to nourish myself? Like the definition we've been given like only takes us partway there, or at least in my mind, it does. Yeah. It's like having knowledge, but doing nothing with that knowledge. No matter how much you know yourself, if you're not acting aligned with that knowledge, then that knowledge doesn't serve you in any way. Exactly. And when you reframe that like yoga is here to nourish me, like that's a big reframe. I think most of us think like yoga is here to make us be better or yoga is here to help us achieve enlightenment or yoga is here to help me disassociate or dissolve my ego or yoga is here to make my butt look better or, you know, give me like hot arms or, you know, whatever it is. But when you're like, no, yoga is here to nourish me. I just need to know kind of like an apothecarian, like the right breath work, the right poses that what I call the soulmate poses in the book that are especially nourishing to me. And what's so exciting to me is like, once you find those things, it's really like less is more. You don't need a super fancy practice. You don't need 90 minutes. Although if you can take 90, do it, but you just need a couple core poses and breath work that shift your energy. And when you're doing those, just like I experienced with my story about the timer, it's like, Instead of a short practice or a mini practice or a yoga habit, like I call them in the book, being like $1 in the savings account bank, if you're doing something that's super personalized to you and affects your energy the fastest and the most efficiently, that $1 becomes $10. So it's like you're making nervous system money faster in this like silly analogy. But I mean, I just use the analogies to like really hope people can action this, you know, and that it makes sense to them. 
Yeah. And I think that reframe answers the question of like, how do we show up for ourselves even when everything is chaos? Because you're practicing to nurture yourself. You're not just doing a practice because you're supposed to show up on your map. It's not this other to-do thing on your crazy list right now. It's to help you make it through and you choose what you need to help it do all these things with a bit more ease and a bit more grace and a bit more peace through it because we can't control what life throws at us. But the only thing we can do is like, how are we going to support ourselves to show up? That's so beautifully said. Couldn't have said it better myself. Yes. Yoga is not another thing on your to-do list. Your whole life is a yoga studio. And that's why I called the book Yoga Life. <laughs> Love it. I didn't put that together. That's awesome. So you've talked about Padyaya. You also translate Ishvara Pradhidana in a new way in the book, which really resonated with me. Can you tell us a little bit about that as well? Definitely. And some of these are controversial. So I'm open to that. I mean, I think Sanskrit's a challenging language, right? Because... <laughs> Each Sanskrit word can be translated, you know, eight or nine different ways. It's highly variable depending on the context. But again, my goal in breaking down some of these concepts were like, how do we just make them super actionable for our time off the mat? And so yeah. Ishvara Pranidana is often translated to mean God, universal intelligence, source energy, letting go, devotion. Yes, we're connected to a higher <laughs> power. And I define it as relinquishing control. Because ultimately, the reason Patanjali included Ishvari Pranidana in his body of work is because it's much easier for us to take action in the world if we believe in a benevolent universe, right? So to me, Ishvari Pranidana, letting go, surrender, right? Like that's a very classic definition of surrender. I kind of take it a step forward to make it active of like relinquishing mm -hmm. control. And the nature of being human is that it's almost like we're trying to balance on like moving icebergs or something, tectonic plates shifting around us all the time. Like we crave stability, we crave things to be the same. And yet the only reality that we are living in is one in which everything is always changing. Like literally that is yep. the only constant is that everything is always changing. And so the other definition that I love to use for yoga is that yoga is the science of energy management. And the yogis figured out really quickly that like the biggest way to waste your energy is by trying to control things that you can't control anyway. So if you want to spin out and like worry about, you know, where my son's going to go to college or how I'm going to pay my mortgage this month, or like you can do that. It's unclear if that will help, but like <laughs> in doing that, you're going to like waste prana drastically. <laughs> so... Yeah. When we look at like the science of energy management lens, the more you can relinquish control of, the more energy you have to put towards svadhyaya, which is that self-awareness that leads to self-care and controlling the things you really can control, which to be honest, are very few. And I mean, like the yogis figured this out and that's why they focus on those things. The only things we really can control are our breath, how we move our body, unless you have to wear a uniform, like what clothes you put on your body, you can control that. Your diet, even that is like some people I know they can't access certain types of food. So even that's kind of a question mark. When you go to bed and when you wake up, again, if you have little kids who are waking in the middle of the night, you know, it's kind of like a list of five things and like three of them are questionable. Really, the only thing we can control is our breath and our movement. And so that's why the yogis were like, okay, we're just going to stay like laser focused on these two things and relinquish control of everything else because it's futile, right? It's kind of like the Buddhist saying, like pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. 
Yeah. And over time, by controlling or learning to control our breath and learning to control our movement, then we, in a sense, learn to control our energy, to manage our energy, to control or to manage our moods, to look at our thoughts and learn to affect our thoughts as well. So it starts with that foundation. And then we can build in other skills. It's not that we are able to control it all. Like the mind and the nervous system is so quick. We can't think that I will control how my nervous system will react when I feel unsafe, but we still have some agency. And I think we learned that agency with the breath and the movement first. Does that make sense to you? I agree. And if we can calibrate and self-parent and self-nourish, we can take care of ourselves. And then it kind of doesn't matter what's happening outside, right, of us. Like something upsetting can be happening. And uh, yeah, I'm going to feel that. You know, if my child falls and is screaming, like my nervous system's hit. But I have skills, I have tools. I talk a lot in the book about your yoga toolkit to like recalibrate quickly. And I think that's where we all ultimately want to be. Yeah. Yeah. For me, that's been kind of my goal. And the way I've used my practice over the year is to moment to moment to just deal with everything that happens, to let go of control. Because for years, my focus was to control. But then you realize that doesn't really work. It's not helping, like you were saying. So then I looked into what are the ways that I can let go of control and yet have a sense of empowerment and a sense of urgency for my own self and my being. And I think that's what the book gives you. You mentioned earlier when we were talking about awareness, the dosha, and how knowing about our dosha can help us decide what practices we need. I know this is a complicated and like vast subject because of all the possibilities. But can we maybe do one example with one dosha of like how to think about it when it's time to choose our breath or movement and what we do to support ourselves in that way? Just for people that are not super aware or comfortable with their dosha and they haven't seen that way of planning. Yes, definitely. The hypothesis I put forward in the book is that yoga was never meant to be practiced outside of its sister science, which is Ayurveda. Probably everyone here knows what Ayurveda is, but just in case it translates to life science or life knowledge, it's a galaxy of holistic and healing therapies that originated in India, predating yoga potentially, and it really focuses on the individual. So yoga came west and Ayurveda kind of didn't. Like it's less well-known. And when it is utilized, it's very much around diet and nutrition. So it's saying like all of us are made up of these different elements. Those are called doshas. Dosha translates in Sanskrit to fault line or like that which can cause problems is a literal translation, which begs the question why, right? And it's because if you have a dominant element of fire, let's say just we can use that as an example, like attracts like. So fire is always going to crave more fire. The fire personality is like the leaders in our community. So someone who's usually type A, ambitious, like wants to be in a leadership role, wants to accomplish a lot of things. So someone who has that personality is always going to say yes to another task, right? Or yes to another interview, or they're going to be attracted to styles of yoga that like ask them to push themselves hard because that's what they're used to. Like that's what feels normal. They're going to want the heated power. Yeah. Yeah. They're literally going to be attracted to like the sweaty practices that are hot because like attracts like. We crave what feels familiar. Again, this is part of like the contract of living in a human body, right? Like I had like a soothing evening last night eating something like I, I want that meal again, right? Like this is just how it is. So we bring in awareness 
right? Yoga of awareness. When we bring an awareness, we suddenly realize, oh, I'm kind of attracted to things I don't need, right? Like, yeah, I'm attracted to hot yoga or like I want to do 108 sun salutations because that feels easy for me, right? As like a fire dominant person, I'm craving those challenges and those things that push me. But what would actually serve to balance me is maybe yin yoga, maybe stillness. So I have high fire, And so one of my go-to pranayama techniques that's really potent and powerful for me is satali. It's like the water breath. It's a cooling breath. So if I don't have a lot of time to practice and I'm feeling that like go, go, go hustle energy, the satali breath is so potent and a perfect antidote for me. Well, for someone who had a different elemental makeup, that water breath like might not be as soothing and might, you know, like just not be appropriate. So when you know your dominant element, it's so empowering because right away you can start even looking at the yoga styles, like which to indulge in or avoid. And again, all yoga is useful in a particular moment, right? So maybe there is a moment when hot yoga would make sense for a fire dominant person. I can't think of one off the top of my mind, but like something like breath of fire, that's extremely like a heating fiery breath. Even as a fire dominant person, like if I didn't sleep well and I'm tired and my digestion's off and I need to give like a lecture in one of my trainings, like two minutes of breath of fire might make sense. And do it. Yeah. Right. So you could make that lunge more fiery by adding a drishti, right? Holding it for a really long time, maybe activating your ujjayi breath, or you could make it more earthy by taking the back knee to the ground, for example, and taking the hands to the hips. So even within the yoga poses themselves, there's a way that you can adapt them to soothe your dominant element. And the rule in Ayurveda, which you know, I also tie into the Vedic principles at the top of the book, but is to like cultivate the opposite, right? So if you're the type of person who wants to like hold island and muscle into it, and you know, you're probably the person that needs to take the back knee to the ground, hands to the hips and do some slow, deep breathing. While if you're the person who, you know, maybe you have high earth and you kind of like the sitting postures, like you're the person who needs maybe the more movement, like the vinyasa flow style or, the sun salutations to get moving. Mm -hmm. So it's a much more sophisticated lens on the practice, but it's really easy to apply once you know a couple basic principles. Yeah. And when you bring that knee down in your high lunge, maybe noticing where the thoughts are going, because if that's not what you're accustomed to and what you prefer to do, you're going to have some discussions with yourself that also leads to more self-awareness and more understanding and nurturing yourself through that self-awareness. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we look at the mat as a microcosm for life, it's like how you approach these postures is how you tend to approach life. So the guideline I give there is to like meet yourself where you are and then transition to what you need. So if you're like a type A pitta high fire person, just so like, we'll just keep running with that example. Cause I think a lot of our culture (laughs) celebrates that behavior, right? That we can all relate a little bit it's going to be very hard for you to be like, okay, well, I'm just going to switch and do yin yoga or restorative yoga. You're not going to be able to do it because it's too much of a 180. You're going to resist it for sure. But if you can meet yourself where you are and be like, okay, I want to burn off some of this excess heat. Like I'm going to do five sun salutations and now I'm going to transition to the ground. That's a way that you can nourish yourself, meet yourself where you are and transition to what you need. So I always use that as the golden rule. I do that myself like daily in a practice, even within poses, right? Like I'll be in a lunge and I'll be like, oh, I want to like 
think as deep as I can into this because I'm a sensation junkie. So I'm like, oh, let's go as deep as I can. Let's hold it as hard as I can. Okay, that was fun. Now for the next couple breaths, I'm going to back off. I'm going to focus on structure. I'm going to really tune into my breathing. I'm going to back off, right? So to me, that's an advanced practice, right? Like the advanced practice isn't the advanced poses. It's like how advanced is your awareness of what you're choosing to do and why? Yeah, and I think this applies to so much more than just our yoga practice itself. It's something that I teach a lot about emotion and allowing yourself to feel your feelings and shifting out of it. Because if you don't meet yourself where you are, let's say you are feeling anxious or you are feeling angry and you try to go straight into a quiet meditation, you're going to feel so much resistance in your energy where if you allow yourself to meet yourself in anger, to meet yourself in anxiety, to hold that for a moment, then you can transition. It's a lot easier. So I think the simple idea to meet yourself where you are and then create, get what you need is so powerful, so simple to apply to most aspects of our life because it shows compassion, right? You're starting with this compassion energy of like, I see you, I hear you, I feel you. You don't bully yourself into like, you need to be different in this. Love how you say that. Yes, so much. All right. In the beginning, you talked about the framework that you teach in the book. Can we go over that framework and the general kind of steps and concepts for people to start to think about how they can build their personalized? Yeah. So the book kicks off with a quiz that's a very simplified, like high level view of Ayurveda to help you figure out what your dominant dosha is. Many of you may come into the book already knowing that. And then I break the personal ritual into a couple segments that will be familiar for most people, but it's like sit, warm up, gentle movement, right? Then doing what I think most people think of as yoga, like maybe some standing poses, a stretch, which is really about soothing yourself and introspection. And then meditations, Shavasana meditation. And what I love about this framework is that there's quizzes throughout the book that kind of guide you towards like what I'm hoping will be your soulmate poses for each of these sections. And this little routine could just have, you know, eight to 10 postures. Again, if they're the right eight to 10 postures, they're going to shift your energy very, very quickly. And then at the end of the book, my favorite chapter is chapter nine, where it says, okay, we've created this 20 minute ritual for you. That's, you know, tailored to your personality. Now let's deconstruct it. And because it's modular, I give actual specific examples of like, okay, someone with high pitta, like, she woke up late or she's anxious, like here's how she'd take her 20 minute ritual and make it five minutes. Here's how someone else might take like their 20 minute ritual and make it 15 minutes because they're dealing with XYZ type of issue. So the idea here is really to empower you to be that apothecarian who can whip up a yoga tonic or a yoga tincture to heal you, to nourish you no matter what the situation. And we actually walk through, we're like, let's dry run like all the ways that I don't want to say things are going to go wrong because it's not even that. It's like the chaos of life is going to hit you. And let's think through all the ways you're going to adapt this ritual, all the choices you have from the breath work to the poses, why you might want to make different choices on days you're feeling sick. Here's how I'd suggest you get rid of all the other aspects and just focus on that, you know, stretch segment, for example. So there's a logic even underpinning like the deconstruction of what we create together in the book to make it work for daily life. Because you're going to go through seasons where you can practice maybe 90 minutes a day or twice a day. And that's beautiful. But I know a lot of people who are in seasons where that's not the case. And that's who I really wanted this book to support. 
Yeah, yeah. And within that deconstruction and capacity to adapt, there's one part where you talk about how to adapt, how to change our practice for when there's a lot of stress, anxiety, and overwhelm in our life. And this is something we talk a lot on the podcast because I talk a lot about high sensitivity and that comes with overwhelm and anxiety. So could you give us a couple of tips on how we would adapt our practice if we know that we're stepping in our day with stress, anxiety? I would get close to the ground. Getting close to the ground is like the best hack. And we have it from Ayurveda, right? Stress and anxiety are very much the air element, right? Stress is a weird word. I've been talking a lot about my curriculums. Like we don't even know what that word means anymore. But the overactive mind, which I think a lot of us have of like, overthinking like what's going to happen or like doing those worst case scenario predictions or, you know, to me, that's very associated with air, like up in the head and the mind. So when you have an understanding of that, like the best thing you can do, get close to the ground, do a forward fold because forward folds right away, like have this introspective nature to them. It's almost like a, you know, I'm, people can't see me, but I'm putting my hand up like a stop, right? Like we're not outwardly focused anymore. We're literally like curled into ourselves. So I love doing this yin style forward fold. I did it before this episode. I do it all the time just to ground myself. I love it because I have like a lot of my body, the surface area of my body close to the earth. And then I'm actually curled in and like in this forward fold looking at my navel essentially. So for someone who has anxiety, I would suggest those. I would also, you know, avoid rapid breath work. So many of the popular breathing techniques can cause anxiety if your personality type is not suited to them. It can make you more anxious. Yeah. So doing like long, slow, diaphragmatic breaths, like the belly breathing. Or I love satali, which is in through an open mouth where the air feels cold over the tongue and out through the nose. It's very hard to do that breath quickly. It really forces you to slow down. It adds a cooling, grounding element. So those are just a couple ideas. I then also, you know, say really upfront in the book, like some days you just won't make it to the mat at all. Like the five minute thing won't even happen. And that's why I offer these yoga habits throughout the book as well, which we've touched on a little bit. Some of them are more psychological, like relinquish control. Like I probably think that to myself like 300 times a day because control is very sneaky. Often we don't think we're controlling, especially in the yoga community, but we are, right? Like there's a million times a day that you can relinquish control over little things that just are energy zappers and don't really matter in the big picture. And then some of the yoga habits are more like, here's fun little ways that you can slip movement in when you're waiting for the tea kettle to boil, while you're at a red light, while you're waiting for your bath to fill, and just giving like fun ideas of how you can even actually get some asana and essential spinal movements and hip stretches in, even if you're living like the sedentary lifestyle that most of us are engaged in. Yeah, I love that because it allows us to show up all through the day. And not have to break a moment and be like, okay, at this time, I'm going to practice yoga. And then this time arrive and you're like, oh, there's so many other things. I can't practice yoga. This allows you to be in your practice, to live your practice, to cultivate a state of yoga instead of a rigid container of like, I'm on the mat and this is only what counts. Exactly. And I mean, a lot of times if I feel like my practice wasn't long enough, or even if my practice was long, I'm just like, how can I slip movement in all the time. Like anytime I'm talking to my kids, I just do big hip circles. Like they're totally used to this now. Anytime mommy's talking to them, I'm just like hands on hips and I'm just doing 
hip circles, right? Or like rocking my pelvis forward and back and getting some of those movements in. And it's just completely normal. Like this is not hard to do. It's just, again, bringing awareness to the moment to think about like, how am I breathing? How am I moving? These are the only things I can control. So like they're actually really worth placing my attention on. In the book, you have sections at the end of the chapters called If You Remember Only One Thing. So for today's episode, as we're wrapping it up, if people remember only one thing of our chat today, what would that be? Your practice is here to nourish you. And if you can decode what that looks like for you, it is more work, right? I'm going to be honest. This is more work than following along to something someone else has done. But it's like a life skill that is going to exponentially increase the quality of your awareness, the quality of your energy forever. And I think I make it pretty simple in the book, honestly. I would love everyone to do 200-hour or 500-hour online teacher training with me, but I know that's not going to happen for everyone, especially you know some of the students here. Like, So this book really empowers you to know just enough to be your own best teacher and create nourishing yoga routines that will really soothe your spirit and I think uplift everyone around you. So guys, if you like this podcast, if you listen to this podcast, if you like how I teach, I promise you're going to like this book. I really enjoyed it. And I felt like it was super aligned with what I believe and what I teach. So get Yoga Life. It's out already once this episode is released because you just released it a couple of days ago, right? Yes, it released right before Christmas. And it's Yoga Life, Habits, Poses, and Breathwork to Channel Joy Amidst the Chaos. You can get it anywhere books are sold, whether that be Amazon or some of the independent retailers that are so great online now. It's everywhere. So amazing. If people want to connect with you in some way, they want to work with you in some way, there's a book and what else can people get or where do they reach out? How do they get to you? Well, you can practice with me completely for free on YouTube. If you just type my name, Brett Larkin, B-R-E-T-T-L-A-R-K-I-N, you'll find- There's so much stuff there. So many videos, but I also really invite you- I do Kundalini with you sometimes. Oh, good. Yes. And there's a lot more feminine form Kundalini coming and somatic yoga videos coming in January. But I also really want to say to your listeners, like you could start one of my videos on YouTube and then mute me halfway through or start doing your own thing. I think a lot of times what can be really helpful when you're developing your own personal practice like this is, you know, sometimes you want to start with some instruction, but I always say like, don't be afraid to then pause the video, go off script or keep my voice going, but be doing your own thing. So please give yourself that permission slip. And then my website is brettlarkin.com where I have all the courses, all the teacher trainings, and I'm at Larkin Yoga TV on Instagram. So Erica, thank you so much for having me. I just feel like where our methodologies and values are so aligned. So it's really been a joy to speak with you. Yeah, thank you so much for joining today and being here and sharing all of this. And thank you for the work you put out in the world. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you're thinking about Recharge, Reconnect, and Reset the Retreat, now is your time to make your move. Check ericabelanja.com slash retreat, DM me or email me for more details. You'll find the show notes for this episode at ericabelanja.com slash 209. And before you go, I just want to say a last thank you to the growing team behind this podcast for their support in making this possible. And this includes all our premium members. Once again, thank you for listening. See you next Monday.